Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Here we are, James, back again for another podcast episode. It's the Do More Good podcast. It's episode 95. How are you doing? Very well, Kenneth. I am very well. It's been quite pod heavy uh, over the past week or so, but yeah, no, enjoying it. All good. All yeah, good. you've you? been on a been on a few trips, haven't you? You've been uh, well. Actually, when this episode goes out, there would have already been three episodes recorded at the uh, Scottish fundraising conference. I mean, please, you haven't been arrested. You made it back in one piece. You didn't make too much of a fool of yourself, did you? This time, this time, no problems at all. And in fact, actually, that Scotland is fast becoming my second home. I was up there for a week on holiday, and then came home and basically switched bags and went back up for the for the conference and I genuinely think the Scots are on the wind up because every time I speak to someone in Scotland and we've got a couple of friends that live up there they always say it's a bit grey it's cloudy it's wet it's windy every time I turn up there blue skies sunshine it's glorious I got sunburnt again it's just your influence. And you also got ble- <laughs> you got bleached blonde hair by that you, photo I saw of you on LinkedIn today. I know you well. didn't was you didn't you didn't make that comment on the LinkedIn. You just texted me instead of seeing that picture of you online. Looks like you bleached your hair. Um, so thank you for not for not publicising that one. But um, it must have just been the sunshine. But how was the conference though? I mean, we'll, we'll hopefully people would have heard the episodes. But it looked from what I could see, and obviously I wasn't there for reasons we'll go into in a second but it looked like to be a, a huge success and obviously people back together again and seeing some of the faces and yeah, yeah just a yeah. good time had by all I think it was a triumph of an event I absolutely loved it from the second I walked in the, the front doors of the hotel I bumped into people that we have interviewed in the past and never met face to face and that and then kind of old friends and you hopefully it just comes through in that episode about how much fun it was to be back in the room it was great yeah, yeah really yeah. good just a, one thing missing Kenneth one thing missing that was you I know I know I'm really gutted I was really gutted to see you know obviously we spoke a few days when you were up there but hopefully I'll be back next year but yeah I've just been um, dealing with a few things so big news I guess from my world is that I'm now officially unemployed I ended up leaving my role at London Marathon events just a couple of weeks ago and taking the plunge into the world of the unknown so big news going full time on the podcast. No, unfortunately, the podcast is, is not paying the bills. But yeah, I'm just taking a bit of time to, to figure out the next thing. So I had a, I've had a really interesting few weeks, though. I think you might have seen my, my LinkedIn post where I put out there and said, look, I'm, I've got a few weeks. I'm, I'm looking around for a new role. But if, if I can give any advice or anyone wants to tap me up for any experience or anything that I can help with, I use Calendly and people have been booking half an hour calls in my diary. And it has been brilliant. I must have had, probably up to now, I, have, I think I've lost count. I'm at about 42 calls I've had. Some days back to back, half an yeah. hour slots without a wee. 
I mean, that's pretty hard hard work. At your age as well. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's tricky, isn't it? Yeah. That's at least four times to the toilet. But like the conversations have been brilliant from everything from, you know, fundraising directors, people who are looking at their next stage of their career, people who want to talk about events, startups, yeah. uh, US businesses, tech platforms. Everything, wow. Everything so you've, been, you've been busier than you were working. Yeah, the list of jobs that my wife has given me is like, yeah, it's not gone down at all. So, yeah, I'm not going full time in the pod. I am going to be looking for a new role at the moment. But, yeah, it's uh, it's a funny time. And I'm. it was the right time for me to move on. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm just uh, sad that I missed out on Scotland because of that. But, you know. Never mind. There's always next year. There's exactly. Always next year. Exactly. Yeah. But look, look, we'll, we'll come on to our guest in the moment who's patiently waiting with by far the best media setup we've seen so far. Mm on the podcast but just before we jump into that i want to ask you a question james so if you ran a multi-million pound charitable trust and you could set the strategic vision of the organization in terms of its philanthropy and its funding what area would you focus on yeah it was an interesting question that you you dropped on me half an hour before we started recording but <laughs> and I, and i think possibly influenced by last week i am looking for to invest in in organisations that are really hoping to cure tequila hangovers. Um, there's that. <laughs> also, supporting people who get mocked for wearing tie pins at weddings. I think it's quite niche. It is quite niche, but those are two areas I'm looking at. On a, on a broader scale, I would love, and I've talked about this for ages, and partly out of frustration from Daily Mail coverage, but I would love to give somebody, an organisation, a million pounds and just say, that covers your admin costs. That covers the tea rounds that covers your, I don't know, your rents that covers the paper clips and the postage and the little bits. And that covers all of that partly because, you know, that stuff still needs to get paid for and it's not sexy and it's not fun, but that, that stuff needs to be covered. And secondly, because it would allow an organization to say to their donors, everything that you give us goes towards the cause and they can really play with that as stewardship. And um, I just think that'd be really nice to give some unrestricted funding, but, but, you know, spend this on the admin if you like. So, yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think that's a, I think that's a topic we'll come on to a little bit later. But um, I think for me, and look, I'm going a bit more serious because obviously I did I did write the question as you say and and sent it over to you to you earlier. For me, it would come to children's mental health, and I think the development in technology. And I've been having quite a few conversations with some tech. Probably again, something we'll come on to with, with our guest. But I just think there is such an advancement happening in tech and we've got such a pandemic when it comes to children and their mental health mm. that at some point those two movements, those two areas will, will converge. And I think there's a solution there. Not necessarily a solution because it's, it's obviously something that's highly complex, but I think there's, there's, there's more that could happen there. So that's what I'd do. If I had that, if nice. one day we end yeah, up in that, yeah. in that position, but yeah. let's, let's get on and talk to someone who may be in that, a similar position and, and and talk to our guests. So our guest this week co-founded his family foundation, the Turner Kirk Trust in 2007. And since then, the trust has granted over £7 million to charitable causes across the UK and the developing world. The trust is an evidence-led multi-million pound family foundation that supports STEM, conservation and early child development causes, and is one of the largest funders of fundamental mathematics research in the UK. Now, since starting his career in academia, our guest has secured a PhD in general relativity, founded and chaired multiple businesses, including Cantab Capital, one of the UK's first algo hedge funds, which managed more than £4.5 billion worth of assets and was sold in 2016 for $200 million. Since then, he's carved out a niche 
as an investor in tech businesses, is chairman of Deep Tech Labs, which invests in startups that commercialize cutting-edge physics, and is executive chairman of Cardio, a credit fintech business. He's also part of the winning UK team that won this year's Midnight Madness Immersive London Challenge, raising money for Raise Your Hands. Now, Raise Your Hands is a charity that looks to readdress the injustice in the charity sector that sees the top 1.2% of charities receive 72% of the money donated in the UK. The challenge, which is unique in itself, sees the teams compete a series of cleverly camouflaged and devilishly difficult puzzles throughout the night hunting for and solving puzzles until they reach the finish line. So we're really pleased to welcome Dr. Ewan Kirk to the Do More Good podcast. Hello, Ewan. How are you? Very well, Kenneth. Hi, good to see you and James. Um, virtually, um, not in the pub, as you as you said, would have been the way of doing it um, prior to the pandemic. So you definitely owe me a drink after this <laughs> at some point. You're Definitely. not the only one. Kenneth has a lot of people to drink. <laughs> and there, there's only one change I'd like to make to your your introduction. We didn't just win it this year. We won it the year before and the year before <laughs> and the year before. Oh, so Reigning champions. <laughs> reigning champions, yes. You and um, you've got to tell us more about this. I mean, I, I said when I was reading it and, and obviously researching yourself and I'd seen that you'd posted about it on LinkedIn recently and then I looked at Midnight Madness and I'd never heard of it. And I've been working in fundraising in the charity sector and in events for the last you know eight years and actually when I read it I was like wow that sounds pretty cool tell us tell us about it so originally it was done in New York a group of students from Yale did this sort of midnight uh, scavenger hunt around New York and it got more and more complex and uh, involved and sophisticated and it sort of got a little bit of a a little bit of traction with the financial community in New York. So big banks would you know, send in teams. And you've got a team of maybe eight, nine, ten people. And due to the fact I used to be a partner at Goldman, I was asked to join one of the teams well after I'd left it. And it was just one of the best evenings I've ever had. Running around downtown New York solving complicated puzzles with a bunch of really smart people then running over to the next place. So they did it again in New York the following year and I took a team from, two teams actually, from Cantab Capital Partners over to New York to do it and we nearly won. I mean, really close, but, but I think the other team cheated. And then for, for lots of reasons, because it's a lot of work, the people who put it together in uh, New York just said we can't do anymore and then raise your hands and a group called Sharky and George uh, came to me and said hey we think we could do this in London would you like to kind of step behind it and help it start and I said sure so we had two teams in 2018 two teams in 2019 we won both of them and then (laughs) I mean (laughs) when we won the second one uh, the guy who runs um Ed, who runs uh, Raise Your Hands, introduced me as the smuggest man in London. (laughs) And I said, well, actually, probably Europe right now. Um, Anyway, of course, it's not something you could do in the pandemic. And it actually got rescheduled, I think, seven times. And then about a month ago, we did it again. And it was just stunning. In this case, it was in East London, so it was Canary Wharf. It was... The, well, we ended at the O2 where they'd taken over the O2 and we had to f- solve puzzles there. I mean, it is 
really quite geeky and we talked about this before the show you know as you know i'm a little bit of a geek but i mean it's incredibly geeky it's amazing fun i mean you know if you can imagine running around south london at four o'clock in the morning in the rain after you've been running for about I mean, 20 kilometers or something, and everyone looking at each other and saying, This is the best time we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, you know, I love doing it and I would love doing it if we didn't win. And I, I love it because of the event. But it is also an extraordinary thing for raising money. I mean, yeah. we raised the best part of 600,000 pounds. Wow. That's a lot of money, right? And, yeah. and, and a lot of that comes from. The teams that were there were from hedge funds in London, uh, investment banks. Yeah. You know, I, I got together the Cantab Capital Partners team because that's now um, being merged into a different firm. So I got together the team and we we came back again to try and win one more time. Well so, done. Congratulations. So it, it's, it's a great thing to do. And it's, it's a good example of a kind of innovative approach to fundraising mm. you know of course raise your hands could just go out on the street and shake around a, a bucket and say give us some money but they've really very cleverly identified you know, here's a group of people you know, the financial services community or the technology community in london who generally are not short of a bother to yeah. and if we do something that is suitably immersive then we can get that money we can open those wallets i think it's it's really smart i mean it's a it's a, a nice thing and you know, pounds isn't going to solve world hunger but for raise your hands that's a lot of money and it goes to a lot of difficult to fund charities probably because they're small um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and that's you know that that is one of the problems is that you know the big charities the ones that you know we all know and love they get almost all of the money. Yeah. And yeah. is that a good thing? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's it's something that we can debate. Should should charity be much more concentrated and centralized, or should it be just let a thousand flowers bloom? I, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly an interesting debate. And and just to pick up on one thing there, I was going to say that James and I would, would love to get involved, but you said that you need really smart people. So um, I think that kind of counts us out of it. But, you know, it does sound like a great challenge. But, you, you know, can... I, well, I just, I'm just going to say that sometimes there's a moment of serendipity where it's not about smarts. It's just about going, this must be the answer. And you, you don't work it out. You just say, the, I mean, there was a great example in the last one where uh, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but the answer was cat. And one of our teams just said, it's got to be cat. It has to be an animal. It's going to be cat. And we just said, it's cat. And they went, yep, off you. So, so there are moments of serendipity where you just get it right. And it's not about solving computer puzzles. Let's see. Sometimes it is. I went to a pub quiz a few weeks ago and I sat there with... Uh, th- Actually, I was going to say three very intelligent guys, but maybe there's two of them and my friend Dan, who won't mind me giving him a call out. But, you know, we were the kind of guys <laughs> that sit there at a pub quiz and 
we just wanted to have a couple of pints and have a chat and we must have answered two questions in the entire quiz i mean that my dad was a bit of a quiz master he loved it but i'm i'm an embarrassment to the family name when it comes to general knowledge and pub quizzes maybe one of the answers cat (laughs) no 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 you know kenneth (laughs) look ewan we'd love look congratulations on 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 an incredible career and and you know your achievements and 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 looking through your your background and and everything that you've achieved in your career I want to, you know, get into the conversation to kind of take us, take us back from the to the start. You know, we see that you studied philosophy, astronomy. You, you completed your PhD. You, you studied in applied maths at Cambridge. How was that experience? And I guess how the question being, how did that set you up for what you'd go on to achieve later in your career? I think some of it is just a very analytical approach a very evidence-based approach to anything. I mean, you can't really make it in astronomy, science, maths, whatever it is, without having quite an analytical approach to problem solving and being very evidence-based. To to a great extent, that sort of tertiary education we do in the UK, degrees and masters and PhDs, they're all very much focused towards effectively becoming a Nobel Prize winner or a lecturer or a professor or writing papers. And due to the nature of the, the academic system, almost everyone fails, mm. right? You know, the number of people who win a Fields Medal is quite small compared to the number of people who do first year university mathematics, right? A very, very small proportion. So all this training that we get creates this, uh, nobody will like this phrase, but creates this exhaust gas that comes out of our university system, which are bright, smart people who have been trained in problem solving. And then they go on to be management consultants or lawyers, or in a lot of cases into finance, because that's a place where you can be a mathematician and people take you seriously, I guess, is is one of the things. So it kind of did quite a lot in terms of that analytic thing. But actually, the one thing that I was just really lucky with was when I was about 14, 15, 16, I got given a big bag of computer bits and a soldering iron and made a computer. And that kind of just started this love affair with programming and computers. And you know, that was very useful for me in my, my research, but also you know, when you come out of academia and you go into the real world, what you need to be able to do is express your ideas. I was quite early in being able to program a computer well and you know, trying to be somebody quantitative in the world right now, you have to be able to program. It's like you couldn't be a journalist without being able to write. Well, you can't be a quant anymore without being able to program. And so I was quite lucky that I had that sort of string to my bow, and that really helped, particularly when I joined Goldman, and you know we were right at those early days of the Big Bang and all this sort of stuff growing, and you had to implement things to price securities, to manage risk. It was all about just writing a piece of code. Mm-hmm. So that was the thing that really drove it, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, and you talk about bright, smart people coming out of university yeah you founded your first business in 1984 while studying for your your phd um that feels like a very confident thing to do at a young age did you did you feel that at the time did it feel like a 
like it, it must have been an exciting period but or was it just what you always wanted to do and that was the direction you were going to go in i think you know i, I think i'll be brutally honest here and and say i thought i could make a bit of money right right because i didn't have any money and i thought you know here's something that i'm i'm reasonably good at i can program and a, a friend and i had this idea for something and we kind of sat in our bedrooms programming up stuff and swapping around floppy disks and doing all of that thing that you do and we came up with something and then we sold it for like real money I mean and you know when you don't have any money as I didn't that was a big deal that was a real eye-opener for me was you could do that and so that was I mean it wasn't really the driver being oh you know I want to be my own boss I mean let's face it I spent 15 years at Goldman Sachs with other people as my boss so it wasn't just this desire to run my own firm. To be briefly honest, running your own firm is a giant pain in the bum sometimes. Mm. You know, you're responsible for everything. But, but it did sort of open my eyes to the fact that you could be commercially successful and be, that famous word, a bit geeky as well. Yeah. And where did that come from, though, Ewan? I mean, was there other people around you? I'm guessing you were, you know, you were relatively young at that time. I can't imagine there was a lot of, I mean, I'm sure you were kind of plugged into a bit of a network of other programmers, other geeks, if you like, that were kind of trying mm. things. But but there's one thing kind of coming up with a product and or designing something and then building a business about it and actually being able to market and then sell that business. Where did that element of it come from? I don't know. I think you just make mistakes. You, you, know, you, you just try, you just experiment. You think, oh, you know, I've got this particular problem. I mean, you know, let's, let's pick a really prosaic one. You've got to create and file accounts once a year. Do I know anything about accountancy? Absolutely nothing, right? So you sort of just solve that problem by saying, by walking down the street and seeing a sign that says accountant, and you go in and you say, hey, can you do my company accounts? And some, some guy in a suit says, yes. And you go, okay, here you go. Yeah. All right. It's about that problem-solving thing. And, you know, the original firm was small and we you know we sold some software and it seemed it was a lot of money at that time but not in absolute terms but it it was it was about that solving the problem and being really quite focused on what are we going to do tomorrow you know we need to get that together now in terms of you know where did the geekiness come from i grew up in cumbernauld literally the second shittiest town in the whole of the UK, <laughs> according to a book that I once was given as a present, Crack Towns, Cumbernauld was number two on that list. Um, I think I, I know, think, that, wasn't Huntingdon number one on that no, list? I, I think it was Hull. Now, oh, you know, right. Obviously, there's going to be people with pitchforks coming and turning up outside my house, but I, I don't think anybody from Hull or indeed anybody from Cumbernauld would say that they are sort of, you know, equipped to I don't know Knightsbridge they're not but and, and I went to what was at the time the largest comprehensive school in all of Scotland with sort of 2,000 pupils and you know my little aphorism is I couldn't play football and I couldn't fight so the only way to actually do anything was to be you know, a smart kid be a geeky kid be one of the dorks and so you know through that you sort of meet people you end up in a small group a very small group from my school going to university and then you just end up in that sort of milieu and before you know where it is you meet some at that particular time obviously a guy saying uh you know hey i program computers too and i've got an idea and you know it's it's not quite you know 
hey, you know, do you play guitar? <laughs> hey, my dad's got a barn. Let's start a band. You know, it, it's not quite that, but it, it's a little bit like that. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, there's much more infrastructure and a much richer ecosystem around people who potentially have ideas. Mm. And if you're at Cambridge University and you're a student and you've got an idea, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's tech or uh, or just a business idea. There's a whole ecosystem around you, like Cambridge Enterprise and to some extent Deep Tech Labs, that can take you through the whole process of taking this idea and turning it into a business. Mm. There wasn't really that infrastructure before. I mean, you know, the idea of venture capital, you know, startup. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably could spell venture capital, but I'm not sure I would have known anything else about it other than that. Yeah. Yeah, um, we could take this conversation in any number of areas, as, as Kenneth touched on in that intro. But throughout it, there seems to be this this kind of motivation, this desire to to do something good with your with your life and your and your time. Is there is there something specific that sparked that? Has that always been there? Was there any kind of spark for that that drive? You have to sort of put put this in context. I mean, you know, with the best will in the world, you know, I am not Mother Teresa. I spent 15 years as a partner at Goldman Sachs, the giant face-sucking squid, and then I was a hedge fund manager for 15 years. Now, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that puts uh, your CV out there uh, when you're applying for that job, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it does. So, so I, I think it's, you know, I, I, I do honestly believe that you know we did good things in both of those roles, but they're not sort of thought of as kind of saintly rules in any way and to be clear you know a lot of the reason I was doing that was to again a phrase I use a lot I've been poor I don't want to be poor again okay and so a lot of it a lot of the drive is to I don't want to be poor again but there is also that thing that at some point I've got enough computers I've got a nice enough house you know I've I've got a reasonable car my kids are set all of those sorts of things, there is a limit to what you can actually do, right? You know, I mean, I don't know. What, you mean as an individual? I, no, no, for yourself. Just I mean, for yourself, there's right. Okay. There's a limit to the sort of thing. You know, I, I don't know, I, maybe I could buy a boat. I mean, I hate yeah. the sea, and I'm scared of the sea, and I don't like boats. <laughs> but, but, maybe, but you yeah, could. Yeah, yeah. But, but, I, but I could, but that would just feel like a little bit of a waste of time and waste yeah. of money. Yeah. So... At various levels throughout my primary two careers, you know, I've always been involved in something or other that you know we're you know, giving money to charity, very broadly defined. Now, that was certainly a lot smaller back in the day, but you know it, it varies in size. I think you have to kind of pick something that is that excites your interest to. You know, I'm sure we can talk about this, but I, I don't think that most charity can change the world. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it does, partly because it's too small. But there are ways of making very specific differences. Now, if you're a reasonable sized charity, you, know, you could help a village in Africa. You could help kids in Cumbernauld be educated, for example. There's, you know, there's a couple of things. But once you've done that, that's all you've done. You know, there are however many, you know, 200 million kids in Africa. There's, there's children all over the UK who 
are coming out of school and they're functionally illiterate you know, or, or innumerate, which is even, worries me even more. I can't solve that problem. Now, if you're Bill Gates, that's different, right? If you're Bill Gates, maybe. I mean, Bill Gates, what he did fantastically well was actually think about how much resources he had and then sort of stack ranked or rank ordered all of the things that he could possibly put his money into mm-hmm. and also worked out which of them was going to have the biggest impact. Yeah. And it turned out to be malaria. Mm-hmm. Now, in that case, he's properly changing the world. There's not very many Bill Gates out there. No. So that that does inform a little bit about how you think about philanthropy and how you think about putting your weight, and as as I said, we are not the Gates Foundation, but putting your own limited weight behind a certain number of things, what is that going to be? You've got to think about it. You've got to be efficient. Yeah. And what's what's the most efficient thing that you can do with that money which can have impact? You, you, you've referred there a little bit to your kind of philanthropy, and obviously you co-founded the, the trust in 2007. Yeah. And, and in some of the notes, I think we were sent beforehand, you know, you've given over seven million pounds to, to different causes. And you talked about that you want to see fail. Uh, and can you tell us more about your kind of philanthropic philosophy w- within the trust? Yeah, it's always annoyed me that, you know, when, when you do a lot of traveling, you end up in lots of airport bookstores and there's always that incredibly depressing line of business books and they're always yeah they're, they're James always, has probably bought a few I'm just going to hide them yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah let me just move yeah. my uh, those ones right there yeah that, that, that's the ones yeah yeah I, I don't have any back there so I just put them in the bin but they're all the same okay and they're all basically a hagiography of somebody who's been fantastically successful mm-hmm. Right, you know, how Bill Gates made it to be Bill Gates, how Jack Welch made it to be Jack Welch, how uh, Steve Jobs made it to be Steve Jobs. Right? Kenneth has yet to release his. Maybe this is the time. The Unemployed podcast host. Yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Made it. The, made it, yeah. <laughs> the, pr- the problem is, is you don't actually learn very much from success. Because right. a huge amount of success is actually just being in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. just being lucky. You know, if, I don't know if, if Bill Gates had been born twenty years earlier, he wouldn't be Bill Gates, right? But, you know, if, just because he was in the right place at the right time. Right time. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that Bill Gates isn't fantastically smart and incredibly driven, wonderful businessman, but he wouldn't be Bill Gates. Yeah. And and I, I think it's always quite instructive for people who get to be quite successful to remember that probably you're successful due to luck Mm -hmm. you're not just successful because you're such an amazing person and I always wished that there was some to go back to the airport bookstore I always wished there was some book about failure Mm -hmm. yeah because you learn so much more from failure than you learn from success Mm -hmm. so this sort of links into the philanthropic thing a little bit when we were talking when we were talking earlier you were talking about you want you want to give money to charity so that they can spend all of the money on doing good rather than spending it on administration paper clips and so on. Yeah. And and that is a worthy thing. I'm not I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to do. But the problem is this focuses the giver entirely on the results, the doing good. What's what's the canonical example? The donkey sanctuary. So 
maybe I'm really excited about donkey sanctuaries. I don't know. I go to a donkey sanctuary and I say, here's a hundred pounds or a million pounds. It doesn't matter how much. Go and do good with donkeys. And then the charity is sort of on the hook to come back a year later and say, look at all the donkeys we've mm -hmm. saved. Now, maybe donkey charities aren't the, the best example, but that really discourages people from experimenting because they, they, they don't feel that they can fail. So we have this, um, yeah, the mantra, which is permission to fail. So you, you know, we try and fund things that are first catalytic in the sense that they, if they work, they can be a catalyst for a much larger change. And secondly, we almost encourage the charities to experiment. The canonical example for us, of course, was um, Solar Aid in Africa, who could get solar lights, you know, the usual sort of thing, you know, a, a bit of solar panel, a light and two USB ports to charge your phone on. And they could get them into sort of Africa at some really quite small cost to get it delivered to the dock at Kinshasa or wherever it is. But they didn't know how to distribute them. How do you do that, right? I mean, do you sell them for like $10 or do you have a higher purchase agreement or should we just all be philanthropists and give them all away? Because that would be a good thing or maybe not. So we just said to SolarAid, here's some money, go and run five experiments in five different villages and we don't care if all of them fail. Mm. Oh, that's so if, refreshing. All of, <laughs> if all of them fail, then you've learned something, which is these five things are not the things that we should do. Mm. Yeah. So that's that's one of the things that we try and sort of build into most of what we do in that sort of experimental philanthropy. It's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week, so I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod, or if you're a professional business person, you can find us on LinkedIn too. There's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. The other reason for doing this is almost all the problems that charities face are government-sized problems. Mm. You know, I... I can't, I mean, I've got some money, but I can't give a light to every single person in Africa. That's just impossible. So what you need to do is create the environment in which you can do a pilot, a, a test, whatever that might be. And we're, we're actually think we're in the process of trying to set something up in the West of Scotland to look at STEM education for underprivileged kids who are mm -hmm. failing in that sense. Now, I, I can't, the trust can't afford to educate every child or give a light to everybody. But if you can show that there's a sustainable solution, so here's a way where this village of 500 people can get lights, they can afford them, and then they can feed the energy back into you know, other things. And ultimately, it'll end up producing money in two or three years time, you can then go to the Malawian government and say, 
and this, this sounds like a big number, but it's a small number, you can give everybody in Malawi a light and a mobile phone charger for $200 million. Mm. And in two years, it will have paid for itself. Mm. Now, that's sort of trying to make that leap, do something that can convince governments who have way, 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 way more money than even the total amount of money in philanthropy to convince them to put their enormous weight behind making something happen. So that's things like policy. Obviously, that's important. But it's also about whilst you can sort of convince a charity that it's okay to fail because they're getting ex some extra money and it's, you know, if, if I'm willing to, and I'm doing air quotes here, wasted, then the charity is okay with that. It's very hard to convince governments to do experiments <laughs> because, you know, it's politics. One charity perhaps could do that, but but because we've set ourselves up to constantly re-reporting re on good news and, uh, yeah. and, and you know, the achievements that we make. Does the whole charity sector need to change to embrace that as a whole rather than individual charities? Is that something you'd like to see? I think, I, I think the charity sector needs to be a little bit more accommodating of, well, firstly, sort of shooting for the boundaries, you know, like properly, you know, going for something that might be completely different rather than just assuming that the moment, you know, what they do right now is optimal. The, the charity's huge driver is a donor comes in or a potential donor comes in and the driver is to say, what we do is the best possible way of solving this problem. Yeah. Of course they do that. I mean, they're not they're not going to go to a donor and say, hey, well, we're not entirely sure if what we do right now is very good or not, but, you know, we'll keep doing it. So they've got that real driver to do that. And the other problem, and this is, this sort of brings in a little bit of a, a science problem, is that they don't report the null results. Mm. And null results are really important. I mean, it's a big problem in biochemistry research and so on is or medical research is if you do an experiment and you don't get a result then you sort of don't report it i mean nobody nobody's going to read a paper where people say i did this experiment nothing happened right <laughs> but you should report that because then it stops somebody else doing the experiment I was just going to say there, Ewan, I mean, I, I, I spent sort of three or four years, my first role in the charity sector, working for a, a medical research charity in Cambridge, actually, around yeah. dementia. You might, you might have come across them. But I, 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 I recall, um, you know, we talked, especially in medical research, when you're talking about a cause such as dementia, we did talk often about the fact that we had to spend money on these PhD students, mm -hmm. the, the micro level where the the you know the next big idea could come from because of course as a as a 25 32 million pound charity whatever they were by the time that i left we can never solve we could never have the funds to bring a drug to market but where we could have an impact is allowing phd students smart individuals you know and and fund at that level but but i do agree with your point that maybe we didn't make enough of that in terms of kind of the failure because we assumed that that would put the general public off when it came to kind of funding oh well actually this charity is just spending my money on these students that aren't really know what they're doing but actually that's a critical area to actually find the next breakthrough yeah there's a there's a couple of things that come out of that 
uh, I mean, I, I, I know that, that that group that you're talking about, and it has an emotional resonance for me in that, you know, my, my mother has Alzheimer's, so there's Alzheimer's in my, my family. So there is that, that, that sort of thing where it's a, it, it has that resonance, but almost half the charitable money in the UK goes to medical causes. Mm. Yeah, there's enough money going into that. And the final thing is it feels... There's a, a fantastic, I am jumping around a bit, but your listeners will just have to stick with me. There's a fantastic German comedian called Henning Venn. And he says, in Germany, we don't do charity. We pay our taxes. <laughs> right? And it kind of feels like, you know, Alzheimer's is a big problem. We've got a big aging population. It's going to become a much bigger problem. Doesn't that kind of feel like something that the government should be solving? I mean, rather than very well-meaning people putting in a considerable amount of money into fixing that, into trying to do research into that problem, that seems like something that we, as a society, you know, some political party should say, we're going to give, I don't know, five billion pounds over the next 10 years for an Alzheimer's Institute, and we're going to solve that problem. Do you want to vote for me? That feels like the right thing to do, I think, rather than, you know, I mean, Kenneth, you know, I'm sure you were fantastically good at raising money, um, but I bet you didn't raise five billion pounds. It was just shy, wasn't it? It was four. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was four. It was four, yeah. But no, it's a great point. It's a great point. The scale that a government uh, can yeah. make a difference in is huge. Yeah. And, and I think we need to make... model is to be applied. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's you know, Henning Venn is definitely uh, making fun of Germany as well as making fun of, of the UK. But uh, but it does feel like something we should have a discussion about, mm. as you know, in in terms of what is the actual role for charity. I don't mean we should have a discussion, and I'm sure we'd have no, a fantastically no, no. good discussion. But you know, and I I I want to, don't want to use the word society, but you know, as a country, whatever it might be, this is something that we should discuss as to where the line is drawn between charity and a societal goal, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. And I think I, I think medicine is a difficult thing because there's there's obviously a lot of long tail diseases where mm. not very many people get get those diseases and therefore they don't get any research funding. And I know that from a rational perspective that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense if it's your kid. No. Yeah, at a personal level, at, yeah. At a yeah. personal level. But so those lines I think are where it gets much, much harder is when you move into things like education and mm. housing and mm. training, where it sort of feels to me like those should be, you know, like that's the purview of a government, not a charity, I mm. think. But, you know, I, I mean, we, you can definitely have disagreements about that, but I think it's... Uh, it's a topic that we should at least discuss. Discuss more, yeah, yeah, more more often than, than than we probably do at the moment. I want to just move on you in a little bit to your yeah. kind of um, your role in terms of being the co-founder of a charitable trust. Uh, you know, we have a lot of our, our audience obviously work in the charity sector. We we try to go a bit more broad now. All four of them are now. You know, the, we've got someone from somewhere else. But um, can you just tell <laughs> us about some of, of, of the challenges that? Like, what's that like 
in terms of for you kind of being the co-founder how much day-to-day involvement do you have what does that role look like for you can you give us any insight into that sure. um we we did set the trust up in 2007 as you said but I was pretty busy, you know. I was yeah, yeah, yeah. building and, computers, uh, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, building computers, <laughs> running a hedge fund, you know, actually having. You know, and my my wife was also very busy doing what she does, so it was all a bit um, sort of unstructured. Right. You know, I, I don't know. I'd be at some dinner and somebody'd be raising money for a a mini bus to take kids to the Lake District. And I go, here's a check, right? Never talk to me again, you know, bye, right? And, and there was just lots and lots of that kind of stuff. Um, and sometimes we lucked into some really important things, but we didn't really think about it very much. Mm. So, you know, after I'd sort of uh, moved on from Cantab and had a little bit more time because I've got a portfolio life, um, you're doing lots of different bits and bobs. Um, we thought, you know, we consciously took the decision to make things a lot more structured and to try and have some broad goals. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously the permission to fail thing. My wife's very into conservation and early childhood stuff, and Mm -hmm. she focuses on that. I also quite like very high-end STEM. So, you know, we've sort of funded fellowships at the Isaac Newton Institute for people traditionally underrepresented in the mathematical community. Which is, which is mostly actually women is, is a big problem. So within that framework, then what we've tried to do is just be a lot more rigorous about identifying the things that we can fund, mm. you know, looking at them through the lens of permission to fail, looking at them through the lens of let's be a catalyst for change. What that, what that actually means is you say no a lot more often. Mm. And that's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously there are some things that I would maybe never say yes to. There's a lot of things I would really like to say yes to, but they just don't fit what it is we want to do. And so Mm. you've got to say no. You've got to Mm. say no to people who, for whom this is their life. Yeah, I'll use the example of donkey sanctuaries, even though it's a hypothetical example. You know, you're going to get millions of requests from donkey sanctuaries (laughs) after this. I've got a really innovative donkey ride that I'm going to put on this uh, on this beach. (laughs) So I I, I shouldn't. I'm I'm not. I'm not actually dissing donkey sanctuaries. I mean, it is an important thing, and people are allowed to be passionate about things like that. But I'm not passionate about it. But you're you're turning down somebody who is really passionate about the thing that they are passionate about right mm. it's a tautology and that's that's quite hard um, but if you don't do that discipline then you just end up doing lots of little things that don't really make any difference mm. now I, one of the one of the things that um having a long career in finance taught me is a, nobody really knows what they're talking about, and B, neither do I. So, <laughs> so to, to put that in a little bit more of a uh, you know, less aphoristic uh, framework, it's about uncertainty, right? You've got to have some uh, understanding of your own lack of ability to forecast and to really know what's going to happen. 
So sometimes, I mean, what we've, what we've got to do is sort of embrace that uncertainty and say, uh, let's go and do things that might fail, that mm. nobody really knows what the answer is. I was um, just a couple of weeks ago, I was up at Glasgow University for the first time in a very long time, um, being sort of shown around by their philanthropy group and, you know, going and seeing cool stuff like, quantum sensing and space rockets and, and all all sorts of unbelievably great stuff and but what I had to do is sort of force people to say yes I, I know this is all great but what's the experiment that you would do that you think you know that if it succeeds it'll be transformative but you think it might fail what's what's the experiment you do for that and I, I, I bet they don't have an answer to that, do they? They can't be challenged in that way. I mean, there can't be many philanthropists with that that sort of outlook. And as you're talking, you and I, you know, as we mentioned in the introduction, you know, I know you you you've got an incubator. You've obviously been around the kind of VC fund. You've managed a hedge yeah. fund. Your your investment in tech. Your philosophy for that type of business sounds like it applies also to your philanthropy. Would that be a correct? In, not in a similar fashion, because I know they they have different objectives, but. Actually, that'd no, be a fair not, statement. It's, it, it's, it's not that different. I mean, you know, something like Deep Tech Labs or something like the hedge fund, uh, when we ran, we were a systematic hedge fund. So, you know, 60 mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists writing computer code, dimly forecasting the market, right? Mm. And if you're right, if you're right 52% of the days and wrong 48% of the days, that is knocking the ball out of the park. Wow. Right? There's a huge amount of uncertainty. And the same thing in the venture world, that you know, if, you know, I, I, you know, however many companies we fund at Deep Tech Labs, I mean, I think we'll be quite good, but probably you know, three out of 10 of those will just fail. Mm. It's just go to zero, it's just not gonna work. And all you're trying to do is to just shift the odds. You can't go for certainty. What you're trying to do is to use that mathematical thing. And I'm also waving my hands around here, um, which isn't going to show up on a podcast, obviously. <laughs> but you've got this sort of bell curve distribution. And rather than trying to sort of pick the right-hand tail, all you're really trying to do is just move the whole distribution to the right a bit. On average, you want to be a bit better. And, and that was... That was how we thought about things at Cantab when I was running it. Mm. And it's also how I think about my own investment and how I think about uh, venture capital and to an extent how I think about philanthropy. That mm. it's about trying a few things. Obviously, you want to get the right hand curve, you know, the, the really transformative thing. But mostly it's about, on average, doing a bit better. Yeah. And you say you have to say no to, to people a lot and that that must be tough and it must be difficult when yeah. things don't pan out and they're the three out of the 10 that don't work. But for those that do, for those that mm. really fly or you you put some investment somewhere and it really works, that must be it must be amazing to see that. You must really yeah. enjoy that. Do you mean in philanthropy or in... Well, in I guess adventure? in both. Philanthropy, uh, perhaps. But yeah, I guess in uh, both. There, There is nothing like being a small part, even if it's just a funding part of something being successful. I mean, yeah. it, it, and it's not, it, it's not in the same way as I am super proud or maybe even a little smug about the fact that we, we won um, Midnight Madness <laughs> three times. See, look, I, I've, I've got that in again. It's, it, it's not that kind of feeling, right? It's, 
it's the fact that just watching other people be successful and you know, go through that process from having an idea to coming out of the other end going it works woohoo you know that that just watching people do that is yeah. just a real joy it really is and you know the, the other thing that you have to do when you do that is of course some people fail mm. and you have to be able to be around when it's not going very well and it's all falling apart and and you've got to say to people look you know maybe this just wasn't the idea maybe there's another idea yeah. go back and try again stand up and give it another go and i bet that approach i mean i have no science to back this up but i bet your approach of saying go and try doesn't matter if you fail i don't need to, you know don't necessarily need to see the results take the pressure off try stuff that is going to result in far better tests and better experiments and more success in the longer run than it does if you say right we're going to give you some money and i want to see x you know really yeah. put the pressure on for results yeah and and there are lots of things in which you just can't put pressure on for the results you know there are some some bits of research some types of very deep technology companies um some types of philanthropy where there's no there's no lever that you can just push which says work harder be more mm. successful you know the, the, there isn't that kind of thing it's got to take the amount of time that it takes to get it done that's um, what Kenneth does to me. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, hits me with sticks if we don't get the edit done quickly enough. Yeah. <laughs> work, yeah. work harder. Work, work harder. harder, James. Stay up. Yes. Seven, yeah. Stay up all night. Get it done. <laughs> God's sake. Yes. Stay, stay up all night and get it done badly. Yeah. If, if, yeah. if you're editing my. Oh, you have listened to episodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you if you're going to edit mind James, make sure you have a good night's sleep. So you can edit. <laughs> But you can edit out all the rubbish. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. Ewan, we will start to, to, to kind of wrap it up. I mean, I'm sure we could sit here and explore so many different topics and you've touched on them before, but I, I, I just, I guess the kind of final question thinking about wrapping it up is from your philanthropy side of things, you know, we're a podcast as we talk about that's, that's around that whole area of do more good. And we've taken some criticism for our name of do more good. Like what, what does do more good mean? But we came up with that in a pub uh, okay, and we like it. Good. Um, but if you've got any better suggestions, we're open to them. How, how, how about do more good on average? <laughs> 52.48. <laughs> That's the ITV2 episode, yeah. isn't it? That's that is, the yeah. One, one after that. A spin-off. Yeah. But what, what, Ewan, what's your hopes for the future? What, 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 do you, what do you, you know, we're sat here in 15 years' time. Is, is there anything, are you thinking that far ahead? Is there anything that you hope that you, you've, you've achieved through your philanthropy in, 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 in that time? That's one of these really difficult questions. Of course, you go through life not really thinking about things like that and sort of trying to plan stuff ahead. I used to say when I was running my own firms that my long-term strategic goal was to not go bust next week. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a little bit of a caricature. But I do feel that there are, of course, times where if you do what we would say in mathematics, the locally optimal thing at all points, you end up in the wrong place, right? You don't end up at a global maximum. But mostly, if you do the locally optimal thing, you know, if, if I just do the right thing this week, 
do a nice podcast with two nice guys, you know, go to some board meetings, you know, I don't know, go out my bike, do whatever it is that's locally optimal for me right now. Mm. Uh, do some reviews of some philanthropic projects that people have done, make some decisions, do that. And then next week, I'll just keep doing that again. Mm. And if I just keep doing that, then probably, not 100%, but probably I'll end up having done some good things over over a week, a month, a year, 10 years. That's, I think that's, that's one way to think about things. It's quite hard to have a long-term vision because, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, again, you know, there's, there's one quote that I use all the time and it is that Mike Tyson quotes, you know, everyone's got a plan until I punch them in the mouth. <laughs> and that, that does say something about plans, right? You're going to get punched in the mouth. So why don't you just sort of make sure that what you're doing is good at any point and then see where it leads you. Lovely. Perfect. Perfect. I like that. I like that a lot. Ewan, thank you. We're not going to let you go straight away. We always have three questions that we drop into our end of this our podcast. This is the podcast. punch in the mouth bit, isn't it? This is the punch <laughs> in the mouth. Oh, damn. <laughs> um, James, do you want to? I'll go first. So go if on. you could transport back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Oh, well, keep on with the computer programming because it's a good thing. Am I allowed more than one piece of advice? As many as you like. Yeah. uh, What I would say is there will be a time where you will look at a firm called Apple and think they are a stupid firm and they will never make any money. (laughs) When you you do that, do not (laughs) believe yourself and just put all your money into Apple. So that, that that would probably be two pieces yeah. of. Um, I, I'd also, re- I mean, I did well on this, but I would remind myself that when you have kids, they are the best single thing that happens to you, and it ends faster than you think. Mm. Right? You know, before you know where you are, the the little <laughs> girls in our case that you had, yeah, that were running around you know, being little girls before you know where they are, they're grown up. And you think, oh man. I wish I'd had twice as much time. Yeah. So, yeah. so that that's that's the thing. Family. I, I, is really I have a bit of a follow up question, which we we haven't done this before, Kenneth. But wow. I, a follow up question: Would your twenty year old self have listened to you? Oh, oh, probably not. I, <laughs> I, I, I was a bit of an idiot then, so maybe not. Um, I, I don't know. It's, that that's a good question, and yeah. I think. Uh, no, we do all kind of change over time, although mm. strangely, not as much as you might think. You know, I, I met, you know, when I was up in Scotland, I met somebody that I hadn't seen for 35 years. Now, a lot has gone on in both of our lives in 35 years. And we went out for dinner and it was like it was yesterday. So maybe the, the me now was inside the me then yeah. in some way. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Uh, it's, that, that's a really hard hard thing to say. I, I'd like to think that I was smart enough to do that, but I probably wasn't. Okay. Well, right. well, Ewan, thank you for being the first person in over 100 episodes to say, James, that's a good question. So we'll appreciate, <laughs> we'll appreciate that one. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, Okay, second question. Can you tell us about one life hack, a productivity tool, a habit or a skill or something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? Oh, God. 
God, I mean, my, my life is just full of little tiny hacks to make things work a little bit better. You know, I now have this, what could in some lights be seen as an amazingly obsessive way of making coffee in the morning where I've cut it down to you know, the absolute minimum number of movements required to make two cups of coffee, one black, one white, um, for me and my wife. And if I walked to the fridge, with the coffee steamer, that would be one less journey. So over-optimizing things. I mean, it, there's there's lots of examples there because you know I am to some degree on the spectrum. I mean, trying to make six pieces of bacon fit in a round frying pan <laughs> precisely. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do that. <laughs> I would say it's one thing I do try to do, and this is not really uh, directly applicable to most people. Every year I teach myself a new computer language, new programming language, wow. because it keeps me current. Um, and, you know, learned one this year and wrote an app with it, and it keeps me up to date. And the one thing I would do is find something that you can continuously learn at. Yeah, that's, cool. that's nice. Yeah. So whatever it is, it, I mean, it might be... Um, golf golf in my situation <laughs> it definitely would not be golf for me but but it's something intellectual as well not a physical thing yeah yeah, so, yeah and not something that can be done you know i don't care if you're obsessive about 18th century italian um uh opera how or, did you know or, you know, I, I, i've got a ridiculously large number of Lou Reed albums back there in my in my thing find something that you just continuously learn doing and nice. that you really focus on and I, I think that's that's good i think it's a, it's a, nice it's a good thing. thing for everyone yeah okay. that and that and fitting six bits of bacon into a frying pan yeah that yeah that's really important and when yeah. you take them out they've got to fit on the piece of bread i told you i was a little bit on spec yeah very good <laughs> uh final question for you as a podcast that is focused around people doing more good What's your favourite story or inspiring individual you have met on your journey or recently who has done something good for others? Oh, wow. That's really hard. Because it, uh, I, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but I might just pass on this because I, I'm not really sure I want to single somebody out. But if you really force me, and you did say recently... Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, the guy that runs Raise Your Hands, Ed, uh, it has done an amazing thing. I mean, he, firstly, he brings joy to 200 geeky men and women once a year doing puzzles and stuff. Uh, and, uh, and actually, you know, the, the guys at Sharky and George as well. But they do that in almost entire, I mean, entirely selflessly. They, they work like unbelievable hours to try and get this incredibly immersive experience it takes them all years to do it and they're doing it because raise your hands is their passion and what they really want to do so yeah i i mean would i have that dedication to do that no i didn't think i would mm. so, great shout very good yeah, so so there you go that's that's why that's what i would um in a recent, you know, recent past. I mean, there's, there's probably others, but you did put me on the spot. And you didn't. I know it's a horrible. Know. It's a horrible question. A horrible we see really people. Are, yeah. We see people like, oh my god, you know, because of course, 
you know, part of the reason, like we were saying before we started recording, is you meet so many brilliant, amazing people in, in this sector in life generally, and, you know, particularly through this. And so when you put people on the spot like that and they're like, every person they've met in the last week flashes through their mind and yeah, they yeah. Or the email that they read or the last thing that they they read so yeah look we appreciate it. it's difficult um oh there's the dog it's walk time that's the perfect cue uh, Ewan, thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it it's been fascinating to hear um you know your background and your story and your approach and philosophy and you know we wish you lots of luck in it and yeah good luck and keep please keep doing the amazing work that you're doing because well, I, I i will do my best and i'd just like to say this was an absolute joy i mean it was really fun and a little bit weird i've got to say but there are there are enough non-weird podcasts out there and i think i think you guys are doing a fantastic job so well done you too right thank you very much um, maybe i should have used you as my you two as my example of people i've met recently who were doing good uh oh, we're sat, we're sat right in front of you as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kenneth's even holding a sign saying pick me James, really any final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts from me are I need to cancel my Airbnb in Cumbernauld and, uh, for a couple of weeks' time, and maybe we can spend that week writing our failure novel for airport libraries. Yeah, we that'll make us millions. On it. We are on it. Right, thank you very much, chaps. Cheers. James, we'll catch up soon. You and all the best. Take care. Thanks, thank you. Thank, thank you. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? If you've enjoyed this episode, and you've made it this far after all, and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.